book of Revelation, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, as John says in the first five words, which are really the title of the book. It's all about him. Revelation chapter 2. We're moving today from the uh, Father back to the Son. Uh, the reason we've been focusing on the Father and the Son, I've not mentioned this to you, but uh, it's really Christ's high priestly prayer in John 17, where he focuses on the most important things. He said there that under it all, his goal with the, the, the disciples was to manifest the Father's name to them and his own. Their names, of course, are the revelation of who they are, of their character and their nature, of their uh, person and their work. Their names really are the treasuries of who they are, and that's what he wanted to leave them with. He was uh, with them for only three years, and he was about to go, and they were about to be to sorely divided and scattered, and he knew that what they most needed under such circumstances was to be rooted and grounded in the Father and the Son as their only sure foundation. And so, and the same is true for you under uh, your circumstances. And so my goal in these first months has been to root and ground us in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son, in the Lord of the Word through the Word of the Lord. Through theology proper, that is who God is. Christ summed up what it means to be kept in their names and what it does, starting in John 17, 3, when he said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And then he goes on to say that this will make it possible for you to be one, even as we are one. And then he concludes by talking about their very presence that that brings, that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. It's all they need. He's saying this, and it's a promise that we've been acting on and banking on for every Sunday now for eight weeks. He's saying, to know him, uh, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he sent is eternal life. Knowing, and what that means is this, knowing them will take you from death to life. It will fill any absence with their presence, I with them and you with them. It will make you one even as they are one. So having spent two weeks on the Son in Revelation 1 and then six weeks on the Father in Psalm 103 and Psalm 104, today we return to the Son as we move uh, on from the revelation of Jesus Christ chapter 1, which we did last time, to chapter 2. Last week we looked at the Father as the creator, as you see on the screens, and the sustainer of the good earth. If you change the slide, this week we'll return to the Son who rules over all the good earth. It's the first of his letters to the churches, his letter to the church at Ephesus. He, he introduces each letter with a revelation of something about himself, uh, and this one is no exception. We, we'll see over the next two weeks that this revelation of an introduction perfectly fits our situation, and then we'll unpack the letter itself, which also fits congregations like ours. To the angel of the church at Ephesus, he says in verse 1, write this, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven lampstands. These are two names of his that focus on these things that he's doing. The first thing we see here, if you, and you can fill in the blanks by Rome numeral 1 in your notes, is that he is the, he is the master of the angelic powers. The master of the angelic powers. He's the one who holds them all in his right hand. He's the one who governs them as the king of kings and lord of lords over them and over so much more. We know from the, first just, the verse just before, the last verse of chapter 1, that among other things, the seven stars represent the angels, it says, of the seven churches. 
angels of churches, you're thinking? Just what does that mean? Well, some say that angels mean pastors. (laughs) (laughs) Which is the no starter, obviously. To put that one, Jim, what do you think about that? To put that one to the test, to put it to rest, just ask Julie if I'm an angel. (laughs) And of course, I am not. Others say that they're messengers who deliver the seven letters that Christ dictated. Kind of like the postman of Asia Minor. Uh, And we don't have time to get into all the reasons, but I think it's pretty clear if you look at the near and the far context that they're angels, pure and simple. And we're going to see, does it say something about him or what? That he holds them in his right hand. Seven is the number of completion, and stars are a generic term. So the seven stars, um, while starting with the angel of the seven churches, they ultimately stand, stand for the complete number of the heavenly hosts. We know that there's a hierarchy of stars, of you know, angelic powers and authorities, from angels of children that Christ talked about, the behold the face of their father, to the seven angels in Revelation who invoke cataclysms on the nations, to the mighty angel of Revelation 10, wrapped in a cloud, it says, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, his legs like pillars of fire, who called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. Whoa. In Daniel 12, we're told that there are angels who stand over earthly regions and over heavenly dominions, ones like Gabriel, the archangel, who fought the prince of the kingdom of Persia, it says, which was the demonic principality assigned to the kingdom of Persia. Or Michael, uh, who Gabriel calls a great prince who stood guard over the nation of Israel. And over all of them would be The four living creatures, the mighty cherubim around the throne of God who come down to earth, we find out in Ezekiel, and whose lightning motions, according to Ezekiel, conjure the throne of heaven and the presence of God wherever they go. (sighs) Their wings are like the sound of many waters, Ezekiel 124, like the voice of the Almighty, and the sound of their tumult is like the sound of an army. And under them are descending orders of angelic powers, rank after rank, file after file, myriads of myriads, down to the guardian angels of churches and, and, and of children. And here it calls them all stars because like the stars of heaven, you can't count them. And it says that he's got their complete number from, from the dwarf stars, you might say, to the angelic giants in his right hand. We don't know much about angels and that's on purpose because they're truly uh, godlike beings and they'd like, we'd probably get too interested in them. In fact, Christians have down through the years. We might even worship them, which is exactly what none other than the apostle John did. He was with one of the seven angels of Revelation 19, in Revelation 19, one of the seven who brought judgment on the nations and he says, I fell to my feet and worshiped him and the angel said, do not do that for I am a fellow servant of yours. Worship God. And that's where we'll end today. It's all building to that. My point is this. These are like totally awesome beings. When the angel, the archangel Michael appeared to Daniel, this godly man, it almost did him in. He said, how can such a servant as I even talk to such as you? Yet as great and as mighty as they may be, there is another being of a completely different Uh, order of being the highest of all orders who is far above all thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities both in the heavens and on the earth. Colossians 1.16. 
who sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, Hebrews 1.3, having been made as much better than the angels. For to which of the angels did he say, thou art my beloved son? Let all the angels of God worship him and all the people of God. That's your king. And he can take us from death to life. He can fill any absence with his presence. He can make us one even as they are one through the word of the Lord which brings the Lord of the word into our very midst. And for that to happen this week there will be no illustrations or stories to illustrate or to vindicate the scripture. We'll look, fancy that, to nothing but the power of God's word to bring this about. He's the master of the angelic powers. They're at his command. And through them, he furthers his rule and everything from congregations to nations. It's a governmental image, and it shows us a good part of how Christ reigns with the right hand of his power. It's an image that's reinforced by by the robe that it says he was wearing in verse 13 of chapter 1. We didn't uh, focus on this when we went through chapter 1, but he says that he was clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. Uh, The the golden girdle is a sash that's draped across his shoulder uh, and then around his waist. Uh, It's a regal robe. Uh, It's not pompous, though. It's not boastful. It's not political. He's dressed with with princely uh, dignity and simplicity. And in chapter 19, verse 16, it says that on this robe, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, which about sums it up. He's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords of every throne and dominion and ruler and authority, as Paul said, both in the heavens and on the earth. These two names go together. He's the master of the angelic powers, Roman numeral one in your notes, who wield power over the nations and Roman numeral two you can fill in the blanks he's the ruler of the nations and just how does this happen and what does this say about him well once again let me get a running start at it so we can really encounter this uh, this treasury uh, of a name we have no idea the degree to which uh, or maybe we do the degree to which you know human government is a good part of the human problem (laughs) You probably wanted to say amen to that one, but it wouldn't sound spiritual. Whether government by dictators or even government by the people. Or maybe we do. I know we do. It's kind of like Ronald Reagan said, famous words, that the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to what? Yeah, help. Or Mark Twain. Mark Twain kind of pushes the envelope on this one, but in light of Romans 13, but he said, suppose you were an idiot and suppose you were a member of Congress but then I I repeat myself. (laughs) Or Will Rogers, I don't make jokes, I just watch the government and report the facts. (laughs) Things would be far worse without any government and we need to be grateful for the governing authorities but God knows they could be far better and that's just the way it is. So much so that it was true even under King Solomon who had an amazing rule, one of the greatest kings in the history of the world. He said this, if you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, Ecclesiastes 5.8, do not be shocked at the sight for one official, he goes right to the government, one official watches over another official and there are higher officials over them and there's no end to it. 
He's talking about levels of bureaucracy that you can be sure drove even him crazy. Where you have one deputy, one bureaucrat, one administrator over another and feel, until it feels like you're pushing the string and, try to make any, and trying to make anything happen. And he's saying that we shouldn't be shocked when things in society are not as they ought to be because society is ruled by all these layers of corrupt human government. All manner of wickedness trickles down from the top. And in the case of government by the people, all manner of wickedness, God knows, trickles up from the bottom. He's saying that the denial of justice, all the unrighteousness, comes in good part because of the the graft and the corruption among those who are supposed to govern righteously. And we will see proof positive of this when he becomes king of kings and lord of lords. It'll be during what we call the millennial rule, when the government will rest on his shoulders. Someone said that God will allow, let every form of human government to run its course to show that mankind is incapable of ruling himself. And then he'll come and show us how it's done. It'll happen in what we call the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year rule of Christ at the end of history, point A in your notes. It's what we call the premillennial view of the millennium. That is that Christ will return pre, uh, prior to the millennium and he'll rule through the millennium for a thousand years. Some hold to the amillennial view, some of you probably, which teaches that we're in the millennium and that he's ruling right now. Biblically, I believe that both have huge elements of the truth in them, just as there's profound truth in each of the major views of Revelation as a whole. Whether you're talking the preterist view or the historicist view or the spiritualist or the futurist. People can be so prideful in their views here when it comes to Revelation. It's such a divisive book, unfortunately, that keeps people from the revelation of Jesus Christ or that causes them to divide over it when he unites us. It's so easy to be uh, prideful in our views here, inflexible, so judgmental, when, when no one perspective can possibly exhaust the revelation of Jesus Christ. On the premillennial view, politically speaking, the only thing that will change is uh, when Christ returns to rule the earth for a thousand years will be the administration. He'll, he'll take over from both man and from Satan. That the curse won't be lifted. That won't happen until heaven and earth pass away. The world will still be, you know, packed with wicked people, but he will be at the top. And it says that he will reign as king, Jeremiah 23, 5, and act wisely and do justice and righteousness. With righteousness he will judge, Isaiah eleven four. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord our righteousness, a righteous rule, and it'll all trickle down from that. It means there will be no bribes. There will be no scandals, no kickbacks, no turf, no pork, no politics, not a single miscarriage of justice. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, Malachi 3.5, and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages and the widow and the orphan and those who turn the alien aside and do not fear me. During the millennium, retribution for wrongdoing will be swift. It will be unerring. It will be inescapable. War will be eliminated as the means of solving international problems. That is, uh, after the war that he'll win when he returns. And it'll all start at the top. And the world will stand amazed at the trickle-down impact of an incorruptible government. So much so that they'll call it the millennium. 
the golden of all golden ages of human history. You know, and we're getting to him, whether you, wherever you look these days, on every level, in every corner of the world, there is a king-shaped vacuum that only he can fill because Jesus is the answer, not only for what ails us personally and spiritually, but for what ails us politically, uh, economically, sociologically, bureaucratically, governmentally. All these presidents and prime ministers and senators and statements are, sta- uh, statesmen are, are like a, a drop in the bucket compared to him. They're, 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 they're midgets in, the si- in shoes the size of canoes. They hold great offices and they're in God-ordained positions of authority that we must honor. And for the most part, we're far better off with them uh, than without them. But there is someone who is standing in the wings, who shoes uh, all of them together, the best and the brightest from every stage of human history, whose shoes they are not altogether worthy to untie. Because you combine all of them, the best of all of them, you, you combine the charisma of a Reagan and the diplomacy, say, of a Kissinger and the, the integrity of a Lincoln and the honesty of a Washington and the, the, uh, the dare I say it, the, the fearlessness of a Donald Trump. You combine all the strengths that make them even in the slightest worthy of their office, all the strengths of all the statesmen, past, present, and future, and you will not even begin to approach the measure of the stature of the only one in the universe who is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing forever and ever. Amen. The only one who is worthy of our supreme loyalty, the Lord Christ whom we serve, the King of kings, and the Lord of Lords. Right now, identifying with Christ is not exactly, you know, a position of prestige. It's not exactly like being in the Oval Office. He's just one of many contenders for, for the hearts of men. Right now, you're a, you're a fool to be a Christian. More and more, that's the case in our post-Christian country. How narrow-minded to think that he's the only way. How naive Right now, uh, even we can wonder sometimes, how, how could so many be so wrong? So often it seems like he is nowhere near the corridors of power anywhere in government. But someday, they'll all bow to this one man. How narrow-minded of them. <laughs> Just like John did at the end of chapter one, who fell at his feet we saw weeks ago as a dead man. They'll have no choice but to bend the knee to the Son of Man, for God has highly exalted him, Philippians 2.9, and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in the heaven and on the earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And to the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. That's our king. And he can take us from death to life. He can fill any absence with his presence. He can make us one, even as they are one. 
through the word of the Lord, which brings the Lord of the word into our very midst. But even that isn't the half of it because the premillennial view shows us the future that one day he will reign. The amillennial view, point B in your notes, shows us how we're getting there. It opens our eyes to what's going on today because he is reigning today. Together they mean do what you can, especially in a democracy, but don't despair. And above all, don't contribute to the anarchy by the, all the anger. You can take the high road because the ruler of the earth is coming and the ruler of the earth is here. The scripture couldn't be more clear that he is here. In Proverbs 8.15, the pre-incarnate Christ says, it is by me that kings rule and that princes decree justice. In Daniel 12.2, it says that he removes and establishes kings. It says, the most high is the ruler over the realm of mankind, Daniel 4.17, and he bestows it on whom he wishes. God knew that some would question this, especially in America, when our man is not in the Oval Office. And so he repeated this eight verses later in Daniel 4.25. The Most High is the ruler over all mankind and he bestows it on whom he wishes. You mean he's sovereign through whoever is in the Oval Office? From Obama to Trump to wherever it swings back the next time? You mean all is not lost if Republicans don't win? You mean I don't have to fight like a cornered animal with all my eggs in the basket of this world? Yeah, do what you can. But you can rest too. You mean God can work his goodness through wickedness? Greater good through evil? Yes, yes, and yes. And just so there be no mistake in what Daniel meant by this, in the very next chapter, Daniel says this is true even of the most wicked kings. In Daniel 5.18, he says this to Nebuchadnezzar's son about Nebuchadnezzar, his wicked father. Daniel says, O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Again and again and again, the scripture makes the same point. God himself said the same thing about the same wicked king in Jeremiah 27.5. I have made heaven and earth, the men and the beasts which are on the face of the earth by my great power and my outstretched arm, and I will give it to the one who is pleasing in my sight. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, through whom he accomplished his purposes. It was pleasing for him to do that. Because the heart of kings is like famous verse, channels of water in the hands of the Lord. Proverbs 21, 1. He turns it wherever he wishes. To which we can only say what David did. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and on the earth, Second Chronicles, First Chronicles 29, 11, Yours is the dominion, O Lord. And you exalt yourself as head over all. Only sovereignty of a supreme order 
from the supreme order of being could accomplish all that we've seen today. Only the highest authority who is seated far above all rule and authority and power could work hand in glove through the kings of the earth. Only one in whose right hand are the principalities and powers who stand over the nations on whose robe is written King of kings and Lord of lords. That's our king. And by comparison to what to all this, by comparison to what unites us in Christ, what divides us is trivial. It's not unimportant. We need to work it through. But by comparison, it's trivial. The summation is this, if you change the slide. And you can fill in the blanks at the bottom of your notes. He is unbelievable. He is indescribable. He is incomprehensible. Hensible, but he is real. He is unbelievable. He is indescribable. He is incomprehensible, but he is real. Application, change the slide again. Many applications, but overall it's to fill in the blank, to prize him and to praise him by saying, that's my king, with all your heart and soul and mind and strength is to prize him and to praise him by saying, that's my king. That's him who can take us from death to life, who can fill any absence with his presence, who can make us one even as they are one through the word of the Lord that brings the Lord of the word into our very midst, especially as we prize him and praise him and say, that's my king. And so today I thought we'd piggyback. uh, do, do just that by piggybacking on the praise uh, of a black minister. You, you may have heard of him. His name is S, Dr. S.M. Lockridge. He was a pastor of 40 years at Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego. He preached as only he can preach. He preached to over 1,000 people around the world or 100,000 people around the world. And he lectured in numerous colleges and universities including the Billy Graham School uh, of Evangelism. It's titled... That's my king. A short piece that shows that even all that we've seen today isn't even the half of it. And to honor our king who is now here where two or three are gathered as they do in courtrooms when the judge enters in I'd like to have us all rise. Let's stand together. If you change the slide, I'll be speaking for each one here today who can say like she is, that's my king, as we stand in his presence. How could it be that all that is not not even the half of him? You mean there's more? Oh, yeah. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I, I wonder, do you know him today? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's endearingly strong. He's entirely sincere. 
He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Oh, do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled and he's unprecedented. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder, do you know him today? He supplies strength to the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges the debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meek. I wonder, do you know him? He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? I wish I could describe him. Yet he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He is invincible. He is irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off your head. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him. They found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah, that's my king. That's my king. Is he your king, really and truly? with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. If he is, after all that we've heard about him today, you're probably just itching to say it. <laughs> if you're anything like me, is kind of our pledge of allegiance. And we can say it together as the pledge of our united allegiance. We can lift our hands in worship just like she is as we prize him and we praise him with these three words. So let's do it, shall we? Let's lift our hands and say it on three. One, two, three. That's my king. One more time. Say it like you mean it. Say it like it'll be done unto us according to our faith. One, two, three. That's my king. Amen. And amen. You may be seated. And get this. Even that is not the half of it if you change the slide one last time. The heart of it, the most unbelievable, unimaginable part of, of it is that this master of the angelic powers, the ruler of the nations, he wore another crown so that we could know him and show him. 